0: I'm going to do a little bit of review, and maybe that will jog my memory and where we are. I'm looking for a place where the word justice is used. So uh, I'm going to to do a complete review. Chapter Romans. It's in Romans. It's chapter... I'm going to start from the beginning and Um. do a, a sweep through because none of you have been here when we started the previous chapters, and there's one thing about Romans that we can't just go here oh, and there gosh. and the other place. We have to connect the whole pieces together because Paul is weaving a tapestry. So we started with Romans 1, and, and for some of you this will be review. Romans 1, and we noted that Paul's goal is the obedience of trust. I'm thinking of getting a different Bible with bigger print.
1: It's catching up with you, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, it's, it has a long time ago. <laughs> but I'm, I'm probably needing a new prescription. <laughs> so, if you look at chapter 1, verse uh, 5, he says, Through whom we have received, uh, he's talking about Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name we talked about how uh, in hebrew the word faith is in the causative form the word for trust is in the causative form which means that it is a, a faith that is engendered by faithfulness or a trust that is engendered by trustworthiness and that the, the word trust is very very significant to understanding the hebrew bible Some prefer faithfulness as a translation, and that is possible. That's a possible translation because of a causative form. But it's used in many places where it's obviously trust. So if this is the obedience of trust, there must be another kind of obedience, right? Can you think of what that is in Paul, in Mm -hmm. Romans? you're threatened with being beaten, you're, you're going to be obedient. Okay. Uh, the obedience of, of threats or, in, or force or something like that. What, what framework does that usually belong to? Your contract? Earthly authorities. Earthly authorities. And those authorities tend to be legal authorities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Paul would say that uh, the other kind of obedience is the obedience to the law. It's the legal kind of obedience uh you, you do it because you have to the law says you have to and and um you'll get punished if you don't uh but Paul wants the obedience of trust and this is engendered by something else and he goes on to say in verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who has faith to the jew first and also to the greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This awkward phrase, or clause, through faith for faith, what does that mean? I would like to suggest it means through trustworthiness for faith, for trust, or through faithfulness for faith. Meaning that God's trustworthiness, his, his faithfulness, Gives rise to trust and faith. And that's why uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. Because that's, the righteousness of God is what brings trust. So, I, I did a, early on I did a survey of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant. Because Paul t- uses the covenant uh, in, in very significant ways in both Romans and Galatians. Especially Galatians but he touches on it in Romans. We tend to think of the covenant in the Old Testament as a legal contract. That's actually not what covenant was about, the initial covenant. An initial covenant was a covenant of promise. And I sound very Pauline when I say that because that's almost right out of Paul's mouth. It's a covenant of promise and it was to be received by trust. And I'm quoting Paul here. Keep in mind, all the all the Hebrew and Greek words for faith also mean trust. So uh, we're not talking about an assent as in belief. We're talking about a relationship built on trustworthiness and trust. So you think about the initial covenant with Noah. Uh, God establishes his covenant. doesn't say anything about cutting a covenant, which in ancient Near Eastern parlance, you cut a covenant. So you have... God establishing his covenant with Noah, there's the only obligations are they not kill anybody <laughs> you know, and, and that he not eat with the blood. So you go forward to Abraham and it says specifically when God gives him, initiates the covenant, Abraham trusted God and God considered that his righteousness. And then a few lines later, Abraham says, so how shall I know that you're going to do this? this is a di- different part of the covenant. This is the land that God is giving him. And so God says, All right, I guess we need to do a cutting of the covenant. And so he has him bring these, strain- these animals and uh, cut them in pieces and leave a path between the pieces. And then God condescends to come down in the form of a torch and a censer and he passes through the body parts, and what he was doing in ancient Near Eastern custom was to say, you may cut me in pieces if I do not keep my part of the covenant. So this was intended to be a covenant of faith, but it turned into a covenant of a contractual kind of um, covenant that was built on cutting. So fast forward, uh, the other covenant, the covenant of an heir, takes a long time to happen, Abraham gives up his trust, takes Hagar for his wife, gets Ishmael. When Ishmael's 13, God says, okay, since you decided that the covenant was yours to keep, and you had to keep it on your terms instead of letting me keep it, I'm going to have you cut the covenant with me, and it's going to be closer to home. Since you took on the terms of the covenant, you have to cut yourself the rite of circumcision. Hmm. That's starting to make sense. I could never understand that. Yeah. The circumcision was not God's original plan. It, it came about as a result of lack of trust. So the original covenant was a covenant of faith. It was built on a relationship with God as someone I trust, and then turned into a kind of a covenant of works, which is where Paul takes the circumcision part of it, that became a covenant of works because Abraham had to fill it himself. He thought he had to. He didn't need to, but he thought he had to. So now, one of the impediments to trust is the wrath of God. How, with the penalty, you're going to keep the law, right? Because you're scared of what you're going to get. How can you trust someone you're afraid of? Anybody here trusted, anybody you're afraid of? Um, I have students who don't trust me always. They uh, badger me for points, and (laughs) particularly extra credit. (laughs) But uh, If I were to bully my students before an exam, I can rest assured that they would do poorly on that exam. Why? Because their trust in me has been broken. They've been traumatized. By that. When our trust is broken, there's trauma. And when, it, when there's trauma, there is inability to trust or have faith. We're just doing reviews, so you're not. Lying. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, um, we're, I'm review, so I'm doing reviews, I'm in chapter one still. <laughs> okay. So Paul very carefully explains the wrath of God. He says it's, the, it's basically God giving people up. To their the depravity of their hearts, because they worship the creature instead of the Creator, uh, and they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and so he he brings he he says therefore God gave them up for this reason God gave them up and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up and there's nobody really that can escape His list here we're all in, we're all in it on one key or another. I love the way
1: way that's worded. He gave them up as a person. He's punishing them. You know, right. what, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just yeah. like, hey, they're not, they don't want to be with me, so I'm letting them go. Yeah. Right. You know, that's a it huge is. difference.
0: It is a huge difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, he goes on to say in chapter 2, don't judge other people because you're guilty of doing the same things. So, at verse 3, do you... I'm not Chapter 2, verse 3. So, do when... Do you imagine whoever you are that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will repay according to each one's deeds. There's a different way of reading this you can do in the Greek but by your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath in yourself for the day of wrath. This is not God's wrath being punitively poured out, and God actively destroying people. It's people storing up anger and wrath. Because if you despise God's grace and kindness, the only option you have left is anger and wrath and hostility and hate and fear. And fear. And so they're storing all this, self, this up in their hearts. And, and God will repay according to their deeds. Every time they act on that anger, every time they do something, they store it up even more. And so they're repaid according to how they've done. And, and that isn't God doing it. It's, he's not counting, okay, you did these many deeds, therefore you punish this long of time. It is that they are storing it up and, and when God lets it go, when he lets them go, the full consequences come out. So he tries to take away that fear that impedes our trust. And then he talks about those who don't know God the way the Jews have been privileged to know him. And says, you know, they're judged by the same law, and their con- their thoughts conflict or or accuse or excuse them so if they have the law of love in their hearts which Paul talks about having the law in their hearts mm-hmm. they're safe to save mm-hmm. and then he talks about the Jews who rely on the law and boast of their relationship with God and try to be a blind to the guide a guide to the blind sorry a light to those who are in darkness a corrector of the foolish I'm now in chapter 2, ver- verses 17 and following. And he says, you hypocrites, basically, he doesn't call them that, but he points out their hypocrisy. They try to teach other peoples the right way, and they're not doing it themselves. So he says, verse 25, circumcision is indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law Will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So, verse 28, A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Now, we did this last week, or not last week, but the week before. I'm almost tempted to restart here. Mm And maybe go through it. So, verse, chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, for in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were untrustworthy or unfaithful? Will their untrustworthiness or unfaithfulness unfaithlessness, nullify the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God? By no means, everyone is a liar. Let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. Now, my has a footnote. The Greek is middle. It can either be when you judge yourself or when you are judged. It's a middle. It can be a middle or passive. So... How would God be judged? He's the judge. How would he be judged? Open this up for class discussion now. Can anybody judge God?
1: Well, we do. Not righteously, but... Yeah.
0: yeah. We do judge God. We make decisions about him, don't we? Mm-hmm. The basic basic meaning, anciently, of, of judgment is decision-making. You make a decision that... The court makes a decision, or the judges make a decision, or the judge makes a decision. Is there a broader sense in which God is judged? Isn't that the point of a great controversy, that he's out for the universe to judge? Yeah, and and where can we find that in the Bible? Job. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking of. Because uh, Rachel Magdalene did an excellent dissertation on... Job as an ancient Near Eastern trial, in fact, a Neo-Babylonian trial. She did what I was planning to do for a third of my dissertation. And and thank God she did it, or my dissertation would never have been written. But she studied hundreds of court cases in in the Neo-Babylonian era, which is the era of the exile. And in those court cases, uh, she established the procedure... And elements of a court of a trial of a trial, and discovered that Job fits all those elements. Some court cases have two accusers. Some court cases have two defendants. They have a first defendant and then a defendant that piggybacks onto that defendant by reason of the the, the nature of the defense. So she established that the two accusers were. Hasatan, and Elihu. Which if you read Elihu closely, he does fit that role. And then the two defendants are God, or Yahweh, and Job. And it's easy to see if, if we look at carefully at the dialogue between God and, and Satan. You know, he, Satan is accusing him. You have hedged him about. So of course he serves you. He's, he, you bought him. You bribed him. You know, that's not true service. But you stretch out your hand and take away all he has, and see if he won't curse you to your face. Uh, God says very well, He's in your hand. You do to him, and and so on. So at the end of the day, it isn't just Job's vindication that has to be established; it's God's, and that's why the divine speeches can best be understood as is Yahweh's defense. That's why they're so strange. You know they. They don't seem to resolve the problem, and yet they do. They are God's journey through the problem of evil and how He's dealt with it. Yeah. Doesn't there have isn't there an element of revealing, like revealing the, the true character? There is, but you have to understand that what Yahweh is doing is is cast against the background of the ancient and Eastern perception of chaos and the combat myth in order to get that out. So, if God must be true, though everyone a liar, and and he says, uh, so that you may be proved, so that your words may be justified, and you may prevail when you are judged. Another way of translating that is, so you may win your case when you take it into court. And I I, I maintain that God has not been dragged into court. He has chosen to take his case to court. He could on his authority stand up and say I am right and Satan is wrong and that's the end of it. But what kind of trust would that build? You've got to be
1: counterproductive. You know, I think as a human I, I, I really struggle with Joe because like, okay if, if God were going to give me that test you go ahead and take my life you'll be don't touch my kids. And like, God allowed that to happen. I mean, He, he didn't do it, but He allowed Satan to do it. And um, as a father, I mean, I you know, and my limited, view, how finite our lives are. I mean, what I mean, I mean, what I have to remember is, I get when those children died. The next conscious moment, they saw Jesus' face. You, you know, you know, death is mm-hmm. different than what we look at it as, mm-hmm. but it still was way harsh because they. You know, real, really tough to wrap
0: my arms around that one. Yeah. So, in a sense, when we read the book of Job, we're caught in, up in judging God, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And that's actually how the book of Job is built. It's built portraying two sides. There are actual whole lines in Job that can mean opposite meanings. You can translate them opposite ways and they're they're the most crucial lines in the book, <laughs> you know, so it's set up to draw two sides: the side of retributive justice and the side of cosmological justice and you have to the reader has to decide which side they're on, which kind of God they're going to worship because it's really we don't just judge God, we still acknowledge him to be God, but we might see him differently than he really is right. and and that's part of our judgment and so the Book of Job really is leaving it to the reader the readers is, is are the judges that's according to Rachel Magdalene and I support her uh, thesis on that because you have the three friends are the witnesses <clears throat> you have the two accusers the the two defendants that I mentioned
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that leaves <laughs> that leaves who are the judges well the reader the readers are the judges we're also witnesses in this Yeah, we are. Court case. We're all witnesses. We're either witnessing on God's behalf or against Him. Mm -hmm. So it says here, verse 5 so if our injustice, what is our injustice now? Does anybody have something different than injustice in your version? Our unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Which version is that? Uh, NIV. NIV. So you have unrighteousness. Anybody else have unrighteousness? i got also. Okay. What was your The verse? NET is uh, <laughs> unrighteousness. Okay. NET uh, un- is also uh, unrighteousness. unrighteousness? King James. King James is un- unrighteous. Which do you think is the better translation? Unrighteousness or injustice? Un- or injustice, I should say. Looking at the context. It is a legal context in a sense. It's courtroom. But if it's unfaithfulness or faithlessness wouldn't un, wouldn't righteousness work at least as well if not better? Unrighteousness for faithlessness but if our un, unrighteousness serves to confirm the righteousness of God and here's the word that's so pivotal to Romans I have a whole handout that I'm going to read from My version sticks to injustice and justice of God and so on, but when it comes to the same word in verse 21, it talks about the righteousness of God, and without explaining why the switch, I almost wonder if there's another different translator. It seems like in the same general passage, the word should be used the same or should be translated the same. So the the great question is, is this legal justice, is this moral justice? And, And you can't get away from a legal aspect because dikayosune, which is the word for righteousness, I'm going to write it on the board, transliterated, of course. I'm going to write another word on the board. So I have dikayosune, which is justice or righteousness, Decay, retributive justice or penalty. What is the nature of God's righteousness or justice? What is is it is it strictly legal justice or is it encompass moral justice? And it seems like if it's untrustworthiness, that is our faithlessness, and our untrustworthiness serves to Confirmed the trustworthiness of God or serves to to confirm the justice of God it seems to me that that and my translation doesn't do the passage justice in the greek n r s v has a downfall right here i think so i'm I'm going to read it the way I would translate it if I were translating it. What if some were untrustworthy? Would their trust, untrustworthiness nullify the trustworthiness of God? I'm verse 3. By no means. Though every one is false, let God be proven true as it is written, so that you may be shown to be upright in your words and prevail when you, or, or, or win your case when you take it into court. In other words, win your case when you are judged. God would not be justified, would he? In the sense that we use justification. I mean, he hasn't sinned. He hasn't done anything wrong. He would be acquitted. Now some think that justification is really being acquitted in a different way. Can anyone think of why that might be? We we know we've sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal so how can we be acquitted there is a basis and that basis is the reason why we can even be saved Ellen White makes it clear in Desire of Ages that our different, the difference between us and Satan who can't be saved is that we were duped we were deceived and that by learning the truth about God we could be won back to trust if that's the case, then our our ability to be acquitted rests upon whether or not we are won back to trust. That's why trust is so crucial to Romans, um, because it's only trust Paul Paul maintains that lead to obedience. It is only trust that will render us trust be trustworthy, and what wins us back to trust is the unmasking of the lies about God that Satan has has propagated and that we have believed in if we can be won back to trust it can be shown that we never would have fallen before if we really understood and known God and that's the acquittal part it's it's not anything we've done it's just that that it, it's God is demonstrating that at heart, we have an upright heart because we we respond to the love of God. That's the litmus test. So, this word justice here, I want to talk about for some time. But, I, first of all, I want to get down to verse 21. Paul uh, says... Um, it's interesting. He says, But if our injustice conf- serves to confirm the injustice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He's not saying God is inflicting wrath on us. He's speaking for how they see it. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness, note this is God's truthfulness abounds to his glory why am i still being condemned as a sinner and why not say as some people slander us by saying that we say let us do evil that good may come their condemnation is deserved what then are we better off no not at all for we have already charged all both jews and greeks under the power of sin as it is written there is no one who is righteous not even one there is no one who has understanding there is no one who seeks god all have turned aside together they have become worthless There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty bleak picture. Notice that Paul says we are under the power of sin. He sees sin as something outside trying to make us conform, trying to get us into his, his snare, deceive us, trick us, um, and get us to all, do all these things because we're in that power. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being can be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed for the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It only tells us, you're dying. (laughs) You're going astray. You're gone. It doesn't show us the remedy. Now I want to look at justice. Because I have to do that before we tip verse 21. For the last... uh, three years I think I have been plowing through various and sundry Greek writers in Loeb's classical library I don't know if you're familiar with Loeb's classical library they have every ancient Greek writer represented and they have if you have the book actually the book form I have an e-version but if you have the book form you have one page on Greek and a page in English so you have the Greek and the English side by side it's very handy for research well I scanned the Greek for all uses I could find of Dikaiosune in Herodotus Plato uh, Josephus and Philo I did Plato first because I thought well you know let's start with the the king of Greek authorship Actually, I did Herodotus first. Um, Herodotus lives slightly before Plato in the fifth century. Fifth of, yeah, fifth century. Plato lives in the f- fifth and fourth century B.C. And I, I looked for all use, their uses of justice, and I also looked for all uses of decay. Uh, this word that I have found to be retributive justice or penalty. So, let's look at Herodotus. Now, it would not be fitting for a man of sense to maintain that all this is just as I have described it, but that this or something like it is true concerning our souls and their abode, since the soul is shown to be immortal. You know that the immortality of the soul came from the Greeks. Mm -hmm. This is why, then, a man should be good cheer about his soul who is in his life, has rejected the pleasures and com- ornaments of the body, thinking they are alien to him and more likely to do him harm than good, and has sought eagerly for those of learning and after adorning his soul with no alien ornaments, but with his own proper adornment of self-restraint and justice and courage and freedom and truth. What is justice there? How would you define it? He, will, Instead of adorning his soul with alien ornaments, he has sought eagerly to... Adorn them with proper adornment of self-restraint and justice, courage and freedom and truth. How would you define justice there? This is dikayosune.
1: Yeah. As righteousness, yeah.
0: As righteousness, yeah. Uh, because all of the, the, the companion terms are, are what the Greeks would call virtues. Mm-hmm. Okay, now Plato. Then said I, we have met all other demands of the argument, and we have not invoked the rewards and reputes of justice, as you said, Homer and Hesiod do. But we have proved that justice in itself is the best thing for the soul itself, and the soul ought to do justice. Let's see, I'm trying to give you the the short version of this rather than the long. I granted to you that the just man should seem and be thought to be unjust, and the unjust just. For you thought that even if the concealment of these things from the gods and men was an impossibility, in fact, nevertheless, it ought to be conceded for the sake of argument in order that the decision might be made between absolute justice and absolute injustice. I demanded back from you on behalf of justice the repute that she in fact joys from God, enjoys from gods and men, and I ask that we admit that she is thus esteemed in order that she may gather the prizes which she wins from the seeming and bestows on her possessors. Then said I, will not each of the first of these restorations be that the gods certainly are not unaware of the true character of each of the two, the just and the unjust. Mm -hmm. Again, you have character and the general when you speak of someone should do justice, you're not saying you should go out and do retributive justice and kill the people. You're talking about doing fairness, doing equity, doing righteousness.
1: Aristotle makes the same arguments in rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, I mean, there's a whole school, really one of the foremost schools of ethics is virtue ethics, which is Aristotelian, but it's all the, the kaiosune.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm not going to read more on Plato. What's important, though, and more significant than Plato for this is Philo and Josephus, because they are Jews, and they're contemporaries of Paul. This is in his work against Appian. That's the life mm-hmm. comma against Appian. Distinguished as he was by his noble birth, by father Matthias was even more esteemed for his, and the translator uses upright character, for Dikaiosune. And then, from this I think it will be apparent that we possess a code excellently designed to promote piety, friendly relationships with each other, humanity toward the world at, at large, besides justice, hardihood, and the contempt of death. Obviously, virtues, uh, characteristics, and he uses decaying as punishment. Penalty for decaying. Mm-hmm. And again, he, uh translated here as justice, but it banishes sloth, extravagant, teaches men to be self-dependent and work with the will. Again, dealing with it as virtues. Now, in his history of the Jewish war against the Romans, he does not use dikayosune once. Why, he's dealing with war. But he uses decay, and it is used, translated here as justice. So decay can also mean justice, but it's retributive justice. And the reason I say I, I use decay here is because if, if, this, if righteousness does not mean penal justice, then what does? Well, we have it in decay that is used three times in the New Testament. And it is used as the penalty of the law. I want to read now from Philo. Philo, I think I, I have a question in my mind whether Paul might have known Philo. They were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Philo is a little older than Paul. Paul spent a lot of time in Arabia, we understand. Three years. Arabia is not that far from Egypt. Philo was in Alexandria. Did he spend some time with, with Philo? I have some questions on that, and you'll see why in a minute. In addition to these points, we must remember also that first among numbers, four is a square, Numbers among numbers, four is a square made up of equal factors multiplying into one another, a measure of rightness and equality. And he's using there, dekayosune kai isotetos, from which we get isotope, isotope. Uh, anyway, it's it's this rightness and equality. By the way, Philo writes on Genesis from a very allegorical way, so you kind of have to wrap your mind around what he says. And then he used, Others are of a mixed nature as man who is liable to contraries, wisdom folly, self-mastery, licentiousness, courage, cowardice, justice and injustice, which is dikayosune and adikion, justice and injustice. And uh, he, he uses it several times. And decaying, he uses it as penalty. He, he he talks about the four rivers that are mentioned in Genesis two, mm-hmm. and he uh, likens them to virtues. He says that river means goodness, um, which he gets, I'm sure, because a river, a river in ancient Near East was very important because everything along it grew, and and they depended on rivers to to farming. So, I already told you, river is generic virtue, goodness, uh, and so on. Prudence, concerned with things to be done, sets boundaries around them, courage around things to be endured, self-mastery around things to be chosen, justice round them to be awarded. And then the fourth river, he says, is Euphrates. Euphrates means fruitfulness, and is a figurative name for the fourth virtue, justice, which is dikaiosune. A virtue fruitful indeed, and brings gladness to the mind. When then does it appear? When the parts of the soul are in harmony. Harmony for them is the dominance of the more excellent, for instance, when the two high-spirited and the lustful are guided by the reasoning faculty as horses by their driver. Then justice emerges, for it is justice for the rule to, better to rule always and everywhere, and the worse to be ruled. And the third river is Tigris. This is the, that whose course is in front of Assyria, And the fourth river is Euphrates. By these rivers, his purpose is to indicate the particular virtues. These are four in number, prudence, self-mastery, courage, justice. And now we come to his most important paragraph. The fourth river, he says, is Euphrates. And Euphrates means fruitfulness and is a figurative term for the fourth virtue, justice. A virtue fruitful indeed and brings gladness to the mind. When then does it appear, when the three parts of the soul are in harmony, and um, I I think I already read that, then justice emerges, for it is justice for the better to rule always and everywhere, and the worse to be ruled, and so on. That is why the river Tigris is over against the Assyrians, self-mastery over against pleasure justice however the characteristic of the river euphrates neither besieges or encircles anyone with a palisade nor withstands any in conflict why because it is the function of justice to assign to each what he deserves and justice sustains the part of neither prosecutor nor of defendant but of judge even as the judge, therefore, makes his business neither to conquer any persons nor to wage war on any and oppose them, but pronounces the judgments and awards what is too, so, so to justice, being nobody's opponent, accords to each matter what it merits. Now it seems here that he's using this in a legal forensic ma- sense, doesn't it? Even though he calls it a virtue, virtue is the judge. Now justice is the judge. And he makes a decision based on what is just. So the question, and I, that, I wanted to save this for the last, because this brings the question, is that how Paul is using dikaiosune? And I'm good, now we're ready for verse 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. And it is attested by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets refers to the Old Testament. What does this mean? But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. You need to know something about nouns in Paul. And this is actually a Greek rule. When you have a noun with the article, it's particular it means the something. When you have a noun without the article, it means that it's an overarching generalization of that particular thing. So, for example, say we used the noun... I'm trying to stay away from using law. I'm trying to find something comparable, and I'm not coming up with anything good. But... um, If you were to talk about the love, you would mean the love of a specific person, like the love of God. And if you were to talk about love in general, you would mean the whole principle of love, the generic principle. So when you talk about the law, you either mean the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses, uh, so the Torah. But when you talk about law, you mean the whole legal structure of law. When Paul says, but now apart from law, he uses it without the article. He means without, apart from the legal construct, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. And it's attested by the law and the prophets. I think he's saying, the righteousness of God does not function within a legal construct. It functions in a moral a righteousness construct all its own. Why is that so important? and because in the forensic model the way G- God justifies people is because he has propi- because Jesus through his death propitiated the wrath of God and satisfied his justice and therefore uh we can be forgiven what that means is that the father is different than the son what that means is that we could only trust the Father because the Son propitiated His wrath. What that bo- bottom line means is we really can't trust Him at all because he d- we don't trust Him on real basis of His own trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. He had to be paid off, He had to be bought off, He had to be appeased. It, let's put this in the real family situation. We'll say that mom plays the role of Jesus and, and the father plays the role of God the Father. And you did something naughty. And your dad's piping mad. He says, you deserve not to be my child. Mother rushes in and says, please, please, father. I, I will take the punishment. Now, if all I ever knew about my father is you better walk on eggshells and walk carefully because he's going to get mad at you. If that's all you knew about your father, then you would be very grateful to your mother for intervening and even more grateful to her for accepting your punishment. And you would, you would probably want to be good in that. And you would probably be grateful for that your father finally forgave you because of your mother's punishment. But would you really trust him? <laughs> no. Paul is, saying, Paul is saying this is not a legal matter. This is a trust matter. So the righteousness of God then has been revealed, and, and by the way, there's a whole cluster of verbs used for disclosing. There's uh, there is uh, which is revealed. The righteousness for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Here it is phaneroo, which means really means to to demonstrate to to show. But this is true.
1: It's interesting, though, how warped our you know, view of God versus Jesus is because you know, I've been around a long enough time. I've known a lot of people that have big-time questions about God. And almost no one I know, even people that are atheists, have questions about Jesus or his character, maybe about his divinity, but not what he stood for as a, as a person, you know. Um, and it's because we don't understand God.
0: Well, I believe it's because he's been totally misrepresented. That's right. That's right. <coughs> and that's why it's so important to understand that Jesus came to reveal the Father. Because without that revelation, his death would have no meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if we take the Bible as truth and, and, and the Bible says God is love, you have to evaluate everything we think about God through that. Filter. Yeah. I accepted that, that. With that. I accepted that very simplistically when I was uh, 14, almost 15. Actually, I was I think I was just about 15 when I accepted that. And and it led me to all kinds of healthy questions that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't said this is what, who God is and then why this and why that. Mm-hmm. And those questions in turn led me to find answers. So, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ or through the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use through the faith of Jesus Christ because that's the way it makes most sense. Uh, The righteousness of God through the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now set right justified, acquitted by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a hilasterion. (laughs) I'm going to use the Greek here Mm -hmm. uh, because there's no good English equation for that. It literally means the mercy seat on top of the ark, the cover of the ark. God set Jesus forward as a hilasterion, mercy seat, what, is that? what does the cover of the ark signify to you? It's called the kippurah in Hebrew, which is related to the word kippur, which is the word for atonement. That word can mean appeasement, I'll be honest. But it only means appeasement when either it's used without an object or it's used with God or some or God's wrath or something like that as the object. And in ritual law, in fact, throughout the Bible, that word "kipper" is never used with God as the object, or any form of God or wrath of God or anything. It's used with sin as a prepositional object. Kipper al-Katah, uh, atonement for sin. And, and in order to make it have appeasement, you have to read in it the ancient Near East, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention, without mentioning the name, a very respected scholar who reads that, who, who justifies his use of the term atonement as reconciliation, meaning that God, God is reconciled to us through the atonement. He uses that based on the fact that throughout the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia, appeasement was understood to be. But... I see the Bible's counter Mesopotamia, so I take a different route on that. But there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I see, whom God put forward as a mercy seat. The mercy seat was the cover that covered the law. So Jesus became the means by which God had the right to keep us. From the consequences of our choices until we could know him again, but he's not keeping but Jesus isn't keeping the it's not a matter of appeasing God. it's a matter simply that that because of Satan's charges and because Satan claims can, he claims us as his own right this is a this is a property struggle. God is trying to get his property back. And, and because of Satan's charges, that he, we are his, therefore God has to present his case, because he's on trial. He has to present his case and justification for winning us back. Because if Satan's lies about God are true, then we are his. God has to prove himself true in order for us to be saved. So, whom God put forward as, you could say, a means a means of reconciliation. And this time, it's not God that's being reconciled to us, it's we who are being reconciled to God. He did this to show his righteousness. I'm skipping over some things, we're going to revisit this next time. Um, He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he is righteous. And he sets right, the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I've I've given you enough to build on that. Our time is up. We're going to close on that note, and we'll start with verse 21 after a brief overview, and it will be briefer than this time. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your goal is to win us to trust and and not to increase our fear because appeasement only increases it. It only uh, solidifies it. It does not relieve it. And we ask that we might see more clearly how the plan of salvation works, what it is about, and why you had to make such a supreme sacrifice. We thank you for showing us the way in Romans. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.